pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, we are on week seven of our series called The Story. And if this is your first time with us today, we're using this book right here as a resource, which is a good portion of the Bible arranged in chronological order and divided into 31 chapters. And we are studying a chapter a week. And by the time we're done, we literally will have gone through the story of, that's in the Bible from the beginning to the end. And this has just been been a great study so far and i'm i'm continuing to learn new things all the time and it's hard to believe that we're seven weeks into this series already just by a show of hands how many of you are caught up on your reading you've read all all very very good hey if you're not quite caught up yet that's okay just just get caught up this week and and uh jump right back in but here we are at chapter seven and and i'll tell you i read this chapter and maybe you're kind of like me but when i read stuff that are descriptive i think of like movies sometimes and when i read through this chapter i'm thinking braveheart and gladiator i'm thinking movies like that if, if you like those movies maybe this resonated with you but chapter seven of the story begins 40 years later from where we left off last week you might recall from last Sunday, the Israelites were right there getting ready to move into the promised land, the land that God was going to give them. And then what happened? Why didn't they get to go? Because when they sent the spies into the land, all 12 of them came back and 10 of them said what? Can't do it. We're like little grasshoppers to them. They got fortified cities. And, and basically what they were saying was, God, you're not powerful enough. Our faith isn't big enough to follow you in there. And so God said, fine, then none of you get to go. And he said, turn around, head back out to the wilderness. And there they wandered around for 40 years. Why 40 years? Because God said every person in the Israelite camp that is 20 years of age and older doesn't get in. So he said, I'm going to wait until that entire generation dies off. Everybody under 20, I'm going to take them in. And so that's what happened. So here we are, 40 years Later, this is some 600 plus years after God made this promise to Abraham that out of him he was going to build a mighty nation. And he says, Now, with this new generation of Israelites, now we're going to move into the promised land and we are going to take possession of it. And I think it's at this point I want to say just a couple of things because I know that there's a good number of people in our church right now who had got a copy of the story and they are reading it and it is a page turner because this is brand new information. There's people in our church that I've never read this before and I'm, I'm learning this. And you get to this part of the story and you might have had this response to reading chapter 7. Now hold on a minute. What if it gives them the right to just go in and take over? Did you have that thought? Did, did it cross your mind? Well, that wasn't a very nice thing to do. And sometimes we approach Scripture through modern-day lenses. Not sometimes, all the time. But it, sometimes it's hard to go like, you know what? I remember some things in our history as a country where we did something like that. And that wasn't very nice. And we have opinions about different conflicts around the world. And even within our own church, there's a variety of opinions about where we should and shouldn't be in the world and doing things that we're doing. It's like, well, I don't think we have the right to do that because these are the opinions that float all throughout our minds. And so when we come across passages of Scripture like this, we might be tempted to say, well, what right did they have to just drive out the Amorite people? Why, why could they do that? Well, if you've had some of those thoughts or you've kind of, kind of wrestled through this, let, let me just 
take a second and point out a few things because we need to kind of get kind of come back around why this is happening why now why at this point in, in history we cannot lose sight of the fact that God told Joshua to go in and take possession of the land and he said I want you to do it because of the wickedness of all the inhabitants of the land you got to remember, this is a time in the history of the world where the people who were living in the promised land were full of wickedness. It was kind of like back at the beginning with Noah, all these hearts were wicked. And God's like, I'm going to clean house and, and, and we're not going to have this wickedness in this land. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, God is having this conversation with Abraham, and he says this to Abraham. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back, right here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. It's like Abraham is saying, or God is saying to Abraham, listen, there's going to come a day when the wickedness of these people is going to grow so great that I'm going to step in and I'm going to use your descendants to do it and we're going to, we're going to get rid of this wickedness. So there was, there was this, just this, this horrible amount of wickedness. Now, what were some of the things that the Amorites were doing? What, that these people that God said drive out completely from the land, what were they doing? They practiced idolatry. That was one of the things. They, they worshiped other gods. And, and we know from other places in the Bible and from history that these Amorite people, that when they worship God, they would institute a lot of prostitution, prostitutes with that worship. It was, it was very immoral. It was, everything was just awful about it. Detestable in God's eyes. They would also sacrifice children to their gods. This was common practice. They would take their children and they would burn them alive because they felt it honored the gods they worshiped. And God said, no, I'm going to drive this from the land. I am going to rid the planet of this kind of behavior. Even more importantly than that, though, why did God want the Israelites in the promised land? Because he wants to use these people in this location to be an example to the rest of the world. This was God's desire to let this be home base, to let the whole world know what it's like to be a people of God. There's 19 times in the scriptures where God declares this very thing as his mission. He says you know, to Abraham that um, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And I and desperately just want to be in relationship with them. And so this is the area of the world. This is the place where God is going to use this people, this place, to draw all the other nations unto him. Why? Because God wants to be in relationship with his creation. So now we have a new leader. His name is Joshua. Moses has since passed away. And Joshua is going to take this new generation of Israelites into take possession of the land. And God says to Joshua, you're going to need to be very strong. And you're going to be, need to be very courageous. Do you remember multiple times the Lord said him that? Said that to him. So let's look at page 89 in your storybooks and let's read about it together. It will also be on the screens behind me. This is Joshua chapter 1 verse 5 through 9. As, Mos as I was with Moses, this is God talking to Joshua, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be very careful. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. 
Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. And right here in this chapter, we see God giving Joshua the formula for great success. And I would say to you today that this is still the formula for great success for us. Absolutely. This, this specific passage of Scripture has special meaning for me because when I was 18 years old, I loaded up my little 1986 Mazda 323. You guys know what that is? It is not a hot car. Not even close. It was my little hatchback that I could afford, and I, I, I loaded everything I had into that little car, and I left home, and I was driving off to college. And as I was leaving, my father handed me this note card. And he said, Joe, I pray that what's on this card becomes the verse for your life. And it was Joshua 1.8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be prosperous and successful. I've never forgotten that. And see, even to this day, I try to, to live by, by this formula says, you want to be successful? This is what God says to Joshua. This is what he says to the Israelites. Well, do two things. Be a people of my book. In other words, saying, you be a people that know what I told you to do. Focus on those things. And I would translate that even to today as we get the whole Bible and just focus. What did God tell us to do? How did he tell us to live? Live that way. Be people of God's word. There, you know, why are we spending 31 Sundays to learn what God's word says? Because it's part of the formula for success. And he also tells Joshua, be a people of prayer. What he's really going to break it down, he's saying, don't stop talking to me. You're going into a land full of idols and false gods and people want to talk to them. But I'm telling you, Joshua, you focus on what I told you to do. You focus on my words. And don't stop talking to me. And you'll be prosperous and you'll be very successful. Now, if you've read chapter 7, then, then you know what takes place, right? Lots of fighting. Lots of battles. Joshua has to raise up this army and he's got to go conquer this entire land. And you would think, at least what would make sense in our minds, is that, you know what, Joshua, to be prosperous and successful, you know, stay close to my words and don't stop talking to me. And let me outline some military strategy for you. Let me teach you to teach your people how to throw a spear and how to use a sword. And you know what? This is how you flank an army and this is how you do a surprise attack. And you would think that God would want to give him some kind of military advice we read none of that in scripture just this joshua if you want to have success in this you stick to my words and don't stop talking to me and you're going to make it and that's it everything else that joshua would need joshua would need would be provided for by God. And we saw that time and time and time again. And so that's what Joshua does. He tells the people, we're going in. We're going to obey God's words. We're not going to stop talking to him. And what did they say in response on page 90 of your story? Joshua 1.16. They answered Joshua, whatever you've commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Now this is quite a different response from their parents and their grandparents. Remember their parents and grandparents did a lot of complaining like, we're not big enough, we can't do it. We want to go back to Egypt where we had onions and stuff to eat. Woo! And so it's like, this is not the same people. This is a whole new generation. These are the kids. And they're saying, we will go and we will do. Wherever you send us, we're going we're gonna to do it. 
And so they do. And they cross the Jordan River, which you need to spend some time. That's an amazing story. They cross the Jordan River and they come to the city of Jericho. And we have one of the most amazing, quote unquote, battle, non-battles you've ever read about in the Bible. This is what God said for them to do. I want you to march around the city one time for six days in a row. And then I want you to march around it for seven times on the seventh day and I'll take care of the rest. That doesn't sound like a very good strategy for battle, does it? But when God's on your side, who needs to know how to swing a sword? So that's what they did. And the walls came crashing down and, and the Israelites won the battle without even needing to really lift a finger. But what's fascinating, what you read about in your chapter this week is the backstory leading up to that battle. And that's where I want us to spend a few minutes because it's in the backstory, it's the behind the scenes that we meet this woman. Her name is Rahab and she shows the same amount of courage, the same amount of faith as Joshua does. So look on page 90. Let's read about her. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the land. And if you read it, you know what happens next. They send people to her and she's like, oh no, these guys showed up and they went on their way. I don't know what they wanted. She completely lied. She actually hid them upstairs and, and, and then they and she said, just, hey, if you hurry, you might catch them. That was her message. Why would she do that? That makes no sense. If you don't know how the story goes and you come to, why in the world would she do that? Why would she hide these guys? What motivation could she possibly have for doing this? They are coming to her town to destroy it. And she says, let me help you. Why would she do that? Well, it's interesting. The very next thing she says tells us why she did it. Look in page 90. This is Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. Now, just, let me just change the scenario here. Forty years earlier, where did the great fear lie? It was in the Israelites. Forty years later, where does the fear lie now? It's in the enemy. Why? Because these people are moving forward in faith now. It's a totally different thing. And she says, A great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard. Do you underline things? Underline that. We have heard. Big deal. What's she saying? We have heard. We have heard these things. We've heard some things. What, what did she hear? We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. We heard about that 40 years ago. And we have not forgotten we heard about what God did and then what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings and the Amorites east of the Jordan who were completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So we know why she hid the spies because she heard what God was going to do. She heard about these people and she believed it. 
She didn't just hear about it and dismiss it. No, 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 no. She heard about it and she believed it. She goes, I heard that God gave you the land. I heard that he rescued from Egypt. I heard that he split the Red Sea. I heard that he defeated Pharaoh's army. I heard, I heard, I heard, I heard, I heard. And I believe. She's no different than any of us in that regard. You hear, you hear, you hear. God did this, God did this, I read this. And you come to a point when you have to decide, do I believe it or not? I've heard, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard. And I, I believe. And that's why she did what she did. You know, when was the last time, I'm just going to ask this, it's a hypothetical, I, I asked myself the same question. When was the last time that you saw something and you're like, I've got to do something? It's like, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I cannot not do something. I, I'm going to act. I, I, I've seen it and I'm going to do it. That's, that's Rahab. I've seen it, I believe it, and I'm going to do something. So it wasn't like she just believed. She actually acted on it, and that action resulted in hiding of the spies so that they would not be captured. Now, here's what happens next on page 91. She says, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. So in other words, she's like, going, okay, I believe that this is all true. I know this is going to happen. And, I, you know, and now will you please just remember me? Because I did something for you. Will you please do something for me? And here's what I'm asking. When you guys come through here, please spare me and please spare my family. So I look at Rahab and I go, she had faith not only in what God has done, she believed it, she had faith in what God can do, and she had faith in what God was going to do. So her faith is like it's come full circle, and so she tells the spies, listen, I did something for you, I know it's going to happen, would you please do something for me, and would you protect me? And on page 91, this is how they responded. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. And they strike a deal. They, they absolutely strike a deal. This is what we're going to do, and this is what you're going to do for us. And they're like, don't break that deal, or we're not going to honor our deal. But if you keep your end of the deal, we won't hurt you. This part is not in the story, but that deal is kind of further elaborated on in Joshua chapter 2, verse 17. The men said to her, this oath you have made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. So they're like, okay, so here's the marker of this deal. Here's the mark that changes everything. You hang this scarlet rope, this cord, out of your window, and that will signal us when we come through here that this is the house that we're to leave alone. And so they strike this deal. And then they said, but listen, if you don't do this, or if any of your family steps outside the door, that blood's on you. But if anything happens to you while this cord is, is, is draped out your window then it will be on us. And it was easy to do because her house was connected to the wall of the city walls and so she could just hide it out the window. I would imagine that when these spies left, Rahab was a nervous wreck. Did anybody see what I did? Did anybody see them escape? You know, what if people ask? What if they come back asking questions? What do I do? What do I, you know, what if they ask me, hey, why is that red cord hanging out your window? What do I tell them? Because I think it looks good. 
I mean, like, what, what do you say? I would imagine she might have been just a little bit nervous. The Bible doesn't tell us. But you know the next part. The Israelite army comes, and they march around the city. The walls fall down. And here is an amazing thing about God's deliverance. Where was her house? It was part of the wall, right? What came crashing down when the Israelites got done marching? The walls. And here, here's how specific God is. This is how detailed God is. This is how God knows everything, sees all things, and he keeps his promises. The entire wall falls down except for the little piece that's holding her house. Now think about that. They march, scarlet cord is out the window, the walls fall, but not her home. It's the only thing still standing. Tell me God's not a big God. Here's what happens next, page 93. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all who belonged to her. And essentially what happened is they said, you're now gonna be adopted into our family. They brought them outside, and, and then Rahab lived. Rahab and her family lived with the Israelites for the rest of her days. They just adopted her and said, you're a person of faith. You're going to be a part of what God is doing through us. Now, don't forget the name Rahab. This is not the last time that you are going to hear her name, and it's not the last time you're going to hear it um, um, in a short amount of time. In the next few chapters, she comes up again, and I'll tell you about that when we get there. But let me just say this. Rahab, this prostitute, this foreigner who turned her heart over to God in faith and joined the Israelites becomes a major piece, I mean a major piece of God's redemptive plan for the world. And I'm not even overstating that. As you get a little deeper in the story, and we'll talk about it more, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, if you were to turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, you get this list of all these great people in the Bible who had all this incredible faith. You see like Abraham and Moses and all these people. And guess who's in that list? Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. And she is directly linked to Jesus. We'll show you that here in a few weeks. And I wonder, as we go through this story, what is there in, what, what is there in this story for us? What, what's our takeaways? And I look at it like this, and I'm like, just like the generation of Israelites, they had to be brave and courageous and follow God. I would say as we live our Christian life every single day, we have to be brave. We have to be courageous in order to live the way that God wants us to live. And how do we do that? What is our formula for success? It's the same thing that it was for Joshua. Be people of the book. To be people of my words. We have to stay close to God's word. We have to fill our hearts full of God's word. We have to know what he says in this word if we're going to be successful. And we have to talk to God. We can never stop talking to God. He wants to be in that kind of relationship with you where we talk with Him and we know Him. And I would also say, to be successful, we can't just say, hey, I believe that, and then our life completely looks different. We've got to be like Rahab, where we believe 
and we act. We believe and we change. We believe and we produce fruit. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I believe it, but there's no real heart change. You know, even Jesus said, many will say, you know, you know, honor me with their lips, but they will deny me with their life. And so just like Rahab, she, she believed and she acted. And, and there were many New Testament writers who acknowledged this. One is James, who's the half-brother of Jesus. And when he was doing his writing in the New Testament, he brings up Rahab and he brings up this idea that it's just not faith. You've got to act on the faith. And it says in James 2, 24, you see that a person is justified by what he has done and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So what James is saying, what many other New Testament authors have said, is that, you know what, it takes more than just some kind of half-hearted, yeah, I believe. Yeah, sure, I believe. Yeah, I believe. I, I show up at church on Sunday. Sure, I believe it. But if there's no fruit, if there's no action, if there's no behavior that changes or just or looks any different, then James is saying, then that's really like a dead faith. It's like a dead body. That's what that kind of faith is. And I know that's kind of heavy for 12:17 on a Sunday. But it's true. Our God is great. I don't want to read more into something that maybe is or isn't there, but I see a real similarity between something that happened in Rahab's life and something that happens for ours. What was the identifying mark to save Rahab? It was that scarlet cord, right? What color is scarlet? It's red. Scarlet is, is a shade of red. And so they knew that her house was marked by red. That was the, the color of her deliverance. The same color that identified Rahab for her deliverance is the same color that the Passover angel saw the last night that the Israelites were in Egypt. What was it? It was the red blood of the lamb that covered the door frames of their homes. The same is true for us today. But our red is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Jesus that marks our hearts. It's the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross that opens salvation's door for us. Why? Because our sins can be forgiven because Jesus bore our sin while he hung there on the cross. So it was the red cord that marked Rahab's deliverance. It was the red blood of the lamb that marked the deliverance for the Israelites it's the red blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross that marks our deliverance too. This won't be on the screen, but if you were to turn to, the, to page 101, which is at the end of this chapter in your storybook, Joshua is an old man by this point. They've fought lots of battles. They've conquered lots of territories, and the Israelites are not done fighting. But this is the end of the road for Joshua. He knows that his time is short. He's an old man by this point. And so he gathers all the Israelites together and he's like, I got one last thing I want to tell you. One last thing before I go and sleep with my forefathers. He says this. This is Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Do you hear this? His message has been consistent. His following of God has been consistent all of his life. Joshua's life is one of the most consistent lives you're going to read in all of Scripture. 
And he says to them, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. And then he says this, throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates rivers and in Egypt and serve the Lord. It was like all this stuff that still is kind of hanging around. Not all of you have gotten rid of. I'm telling you right now, serve the Lord only and get rid of that stuff. And then he says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you. In other words, take everything that you've seen God do, take all the stuff that he's done, all the battles he's fought for you. Do you remember reading about the battle where they were fighting and God sent a huge hailstorm and wiped out the enemy? You know, that kind of God who provides for us like that. If that seems undesirable to you, Joshua says, to have the Lord fighting with all of that, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Hey, make a decision. Who are you going to serve? It's crunch time. I'm calling you to account. That's what So you choose whether the God of your ancestors, who they serve beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. And then he says one of the most significant things you're going to read in all the Old Testament. He looks out at these people and he says, but as for me and my house, Okay. As for me and my house, I don't care what you do. You know what God wants you to do. If you want to serve out, whatever. But I'm going to tell you what. For me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. That's what we're going to do. As for me and my house. No, all of you, you, you can do whatever you want to do. But you come to my door at my house. You cross over this entry into my home. You're going to know that this is a house that serves the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Is, you, is your house a house that serves the Lord? Men, dads, fathers, I'm talking to you especially. Are you like Joshua today that can stand in the entry of your home and say, I don't care what the rest of you do, but as for me and my house, this house is going to serve God. That's what you're going to find in here. That's what you're going to find people doing in here. Me and my house is going to be all about God. How do we do that today? Same way that God told Joshua as they stood there looking at Jericho, wondering what to do. He said, be people about my word and don't ever stop talking to me. You be men and women of faith and produce great fruit in your life. And I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And I wonder how many of us today need to be reminded of God's promise to never leave and never forsake. So what's your house like? Is it a house that serves and honors God? People will know it by the place of God's word and how well you talk to him.